Lord Jesus, please help Daddy in his um, preaching and help him not to say anything bad. Um, guard his heart and give him your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, now I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to go. All right, uh, it is the new year. And um, I should have done this last week, but I'm going to do it this week. I'm going to do a, a sermon on New Year's resolutions. Yeah. New Year's resolutions, uh, you know, many of us are really cynical when it comes to New Year's resolutions. You know, I see on Facebook people post a thing, you know, about the gym. You know, that's a big gym membership day, right? Everybody's going to go to the gym, going to hit the gym. They're like, this is, this is the year. That's what people say. And then uh, two weeks later, you know, it's a big joke, ha, 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 you go back to eating your bonbons or whatever unhealthy thing, you know, Red Bull or whatever unhealthy thing people drink that I don't drink. So, I'm drinking water, what do you mean? But I do think there is wisdom in looking at the new year as an opportunity for newness within yourself or self-improvement or whatever you want to say. I do think there's wisdom in that, because here's the deal. At some point, all of us kind of look at ourselves in the mirror, whether physically or spiritually, and go, okay, this needs to change. Uh, I don't think there's any one of us in this room that would look ourselves in the face and say, there is absolutely no room for improvement in my life. So the question is, why don't we take this new year, the incoming year, as an opportunity or an excuse to really look at ourselves and do that? Now, Jewish friends have this, uh, this happens for them. Does anybody know the festival that the Jews celebrate their, their new year in? Wyman, Israel guy. Huh? Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. Very good. Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. Good. Everybody say Rosh Hashanah. Okay, so Rosh Hashanah is a really interesting time for Jewish people. They look past the past year at their sins. They ask God to forgive them, keep them in the book of the life. And then they look forward to the new year and say, okay. Um, by the way, it's not January 1st on their calendar. It's in April somewhere. May 22nd. Thank you. March 22nd. What is it? March 22nd. Go with her. Okay? It's not January 1st. It's March something. 20th or 20th, somewhere. Here's the point. <laughs> this t January 1st was not actually Rosh Hashanah, but I do think it's a very, very good idea. And I brought up Rosh Hashanah to say, hey, this started with the Jewish people, so this is cool for us to take this as an a, a, a advantage of this and use this ourselves. So, one of the issues with New Year's resolutions is that we always fail at them, or we generally always fail at them. And so what we do is we fill the baby out with the bathwater. We say, because I failed all those other years, I'm just not going to make a resolution. Well, here's the deal. You made a resolution because you needed to change something. So the fact that you failed uh, in other circumstances doesn't mean that you still don't need to change. All it means is now you're saying you're going to quit on changing. Well, we're Christians. And Christians, we don't quit. That's not what we do. So... We're going to look at the scripture, and we're going to figure out what the scripture says about changing. We're going to look at what the scripture says about improving from a biblical perspective. There are many things that people do that are right concepts, but done in the wrong source of power. We say that again. There are many things that people do that are right concepts, 
but are done from the wrong source of power. So this whole concept of New Year's resolution and changing and improving yourself is one of them. You know, when Jesus showed up, what was the first message he ever gave? What's the first word that people ever heard publicly from the mouth of Jesus Christ? Repent. What does that mean in layman's term? Change. And Jesus shows up and he says, guess what, guys? It's a new year. Everybody has to repent. Everybody has to change. Right? So, so this is good. This is the very first message of Jesus was change. Make all things new. This is what he does. Okay, now let's turn to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. It's got to be my kid. Johan, please sit in the chair. Don't move around. Just right there. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Philippians chapter 1. <laughs> the Philippians were a church that Paul really, really loved. And he, he wrote to them like he writes to all the other churches, but he says a few things in Philippians that are very, very inspiring and very pertinent to our understanding of how real change occurs in a person. So, Philippians chapter 1, let's start from verse 3. Paul says to the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now watch this. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am sure of this. Um, another use of that Greek word is trust. He's saying, I am trusting in this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, who is the he that Paul is talking about? He who began a good work. Who is the he? Well, look at it again. He who began the good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we've got a couple, we've got a couple uh, candidates here. One said Jesus. Another said Holy Spirit. Anybody else? Huh? God who? God the Father. Okay, so listen, we're Christians. We believe that God is one God, but he exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's very interesting to me. I said, who is the one that began the good work? Somebody said Jesus. Somebody said the Holy Spirit. Somebody said the Father. Well, who's right? Okay, let's go down the list. Let's start with the Father who's probably the direct subject here. Let's start with the Father. What does Jesus, what does Paul mean by saying that the Father began the good work? What does that mean, the Father began the good work? John chapter 6, verse 37. Stevie, Stevie's going to help us. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Wait, say it again. <laughs> All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never Okay, John 6, 37. All the Father gives to me will come to me. How many of you believe in Jesus? Yeah. 
Yeah, we're gonna get two people about to get baptized this this Sunday, right? You believe in Jesus, yeah? Do you know why you believe in Jesus? Why, according to that text, did you come to Jesus? It's very simple. The Father gave you to Jesus. You sit there, look, one of these days, the judgment day is going to happen, right? You're going to have some people on the right and some people on the left. What separated you? Like, why do you believe in Jesus and the other guy didn't? Now, I know people, people get hung up on this, but let's just, we only have two options. The Father chose to give us to Jesus. So you only have two options. Either you made it into heaven because you were smart enough to pick Jesus, or you got there because the Father gave you to Jesus. What comes before you coming to Jesus in John chapter 6? All the Father gives me will come to me. What came first, the giving or the coming? The giving. So the Father looks down at you in your rebellion and your sin. You know, the scripture says, all we like sheep have what? Gone astray. You know, we were out at Planned Parenthood today. <clears throat> and one of us said, listen, we're not here, to, we're not here to, to judge everybody about Planned Parenthood. Your support of abortion is not the only sin that you have to deal with when you stand before God. It is a horrible sin, but it's not the only thing you'll have to deal with when you stand before God. We will have to deal with our straying away. All of us are like this. And it gets manifested in all these different ways. So there you are, straying off like a sheep. He got, before God made the world, he knew you. Right? Every hair on your head, he knows you. Yeah? And what does he know about you? What he knows about you is that you're full of self-will, that we're selfish, and that we're going to go astray over and over and over again. How many of you, even now, after believing in the Lord Jesus, knowing that he's king and God over your life, are still straying every day? How, yeah, raise your hand. <clears throat> so we're all doing this. So who began the work? Was it the sheep that was straying? It, let, me, let me explain something to you. If sheep that were straying can suddenly sit there and say, you know what, I'm going to go back to the shepherd, then you would not need a shepherd, would you? The reason you need a shepherd is because you're constantly straying. Everybody knows this, that sheep, you know, one of these guys, they'll decide to go off a cliff, and the other guys go, oh, that's a good idea. Let's go off a cliff. This is what we do. This explains our society, by the way. That one verse in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, explains our society. Because our society, you'll have one group of people that'll go this way, off a cliff, they'll follow them. Another group goes that way, we'll follow them. Another group goes that way. Everybody's going off the cliff. So, none of us, in and of ourselves, here's the, here's the really humbling news of the scripture. You and I, in and of ourselves, are not just going to randomly one day decide, I am going to turn and follow God. If you think that of yourself, then I have not done a very good job of explaining to you the biblical doctrine of sin. Because Romans chapter 3 says, no one seeks after God. But then that confuses us, right? Because you're like, what do you mean no one seeks after God? I'm seeking after God. Yes, you are. But why? John 6.37 explains it to us. What does John 6.44 say? <clears throat> That's you, Stevie. You lost your place. 
John 6.44 says what, Stevie? No one can... No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. I will raise him up in the last day. Okay, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So what did we see in 6.37? In 6.37, you are given by the Father to Jesus, and as a result, you come to him. But now in the real world, that happened in eternity when you got given to the Father. But in the real world, in your life, when you started getting that, man, who is this Jesus, by the way? And you started saying, man, I don't want to live that life anymore. You heard about it. When, 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 When you start really getting that inclination in your heart, that's not you as a sheep deciding one day randomly that you're going to stop going astray. That is the shepherd saying, you're not going off that cliff, man, woman, child. You're not going off the cliff. And he's coming for you. That's what it says. So he who began a good work in you, that's the father giving you to the son. He began that work. You did not decide that. Now you do make a decision. Because what, what, what Jesus says is, all the father gives me will what? Come to me. So you are coming. The question isn't whether you, you or not you have to come to Christ. If you don't believe in Jesus right now in this very moment, you have a duty to come to him. You must make a decision to come to him. That's what the scripture says. What I'm saying is the reason you want to come to him is because he was the one that began that work. Let's talk about Jesus. He who began a good work in you. The scripture says, without holiness, no one will what? See God. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart because they will see the face of God. Are you pure in heart? Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Are you perfect? Well, Hebrews chapter 10 says, by a single offering, he, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. So what does that mean? That means that the work that was done in you by Jesus was that on the cross he perfected you. He qualified you. He made you perfect in front of the Father, before the Father. You have a question? Okay. <clears throat> he perfected you before the Father. You didn't perfect yourself. By the way, this is all religion. All religion is, yeah, you got a problem with God and you got to do something to fix that. And the work that Jesus began and will complete is Jesus saying, yeah, you got a problem with God. You cannot fix anything. You are a disaster. Because when you were straying as a sheep, you strayed into a big giant mud puddle and you rolled around in it and there is nothing you can do to cleanse yourself. Nothing. So you're sitting there straying and you're in your mud puddle and you're completely and totally filthy. And what does the Lord Jesus do? He sacrifices himself so that you can be completely and totally clean. He was the one that began that work, not you. Jesus cleanses us. He who began a good work in you. The Spirit of God then comes in as John 6, 44 tells us, and draws us in. 
At the end of that discourse, when Jesus talks, he says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Meaning, I'm talking to you about spiritual things that you can only understand by the Holy Spirit of God. When I say that God is drawing you, what I'm saying is that the Spirit of God is going into your heart and saying, hey, come here. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You know, you talk about hard-hearted people. Yeah, so-and-so has a hard heart. <clears throat> he doesn't want to listen to the gospel. She doesn't want to listen to the gospel. Why do you have a soft heart? Do you have a soft heart because you are better than your neighbor who doesn't listen? Do you have a soft heart because you are smarter? You're more spiritually sensitive. You're just naturally a better person. No. Ezekiel 36 says you have a soft heart because it was God who took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. The Spirit began that work. And yes, out of that heart, out of that receptive heart, you began to make decisions. Because a soft heart is going to make different decisions than a hard heart will. So yes, you know, you're out there and you're, and you're preaching the gospel and the majority of, you know, you're going to get people that walk by and, you know, there's a guy that gave me a nice hand gesture this morning. He was saying that I was number one and he was saying it with a different finger. Usually this is how you say it. We're number one. He had a different finger he was giving me. And, you know, that's fine. God bless him. But you know what? There were other people that stopped, that took a track, that took a Bible. So I get to see the times when God is working on a person. That's a glorious thing. That's one of the reasons you should tell the gospel to as many people as you possibly can. Because when you see somebody kind of blink their eyes and go, well, what is this Jesus stuff? You're seeing something supernatural happen. You're seeing something more supernatural happen than if you were to see a dead person physically raised from the dead. And I am not exaggerating. You know why I'm saying that? Here's the deal. Lazarus was physically raised from the dead, yeah? Well, guess what happened to Lazarus 40 years later? He physically died again. When somebody is raised to spiritual life, are they ever going to die again spiritually? No, Revelation says they will not be hurt by the second death, right? When you see somebody resurrected spiritually, that is a greater miracle than seeing somebody raised from the dead physically. It is. So when you go preach the gospel to somebody and they start getting curious about Jesus, you know, we have people here, you know, a year ago, didn't want anything to do with God. And now they're like, well, tell me a little bit more about this. That is supernatural. You're literally seeing the spiritual rebirth and resurrection. Do you realize that being born again is a rebirth and a resurrection at the same time? This is unbelievable to be a Christian. I am seeing a dead person raised and a new baby born simultaneously. Okay, only God can accomplish that. This is what the Spirit of God does. Okay, so the Father began the work by giving us to the Son. The Son began the work by accomplishing the perfection that we need to stand before God. And the Spirit began the work by taking what the Father and the Son have done and bringing it to your heart so that He becomes irresistible to you. Like, some of you who've met Jesus, right, could you ever truly leave Him? Like, you can get mad at Him, okay, or you can get whatever. But you can never really truly leave Him once you've actually totally met Him. 
It's not because you're an awesome person. It's just that he's, he's Jesus. It's Jesus. So he began the work. Now, what does this have to do with your New Year's resolution? Here's what it has to do. In your spirituality, it is insane to believe that in your own self-effort, you are going to complete the improvements that you need to make if you couldn't even start yourself up. You know, Paul asked the Galatian, after beginning in the spirit, are you now going to complete it in the flesh? Because they, they were falling back into legalism. Understanding that you were completely and totally dependent on God from the very beginning protects you from two extremes. Extreme number one is pride. I'm saved because I was smarter, blah, 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 and my next door neighbor is just silly. You know, we see it on Facebook all the time. All those silly liberals or those silly kids, whatever. We know the truth because we're so intelligent or whatever it is. Or sell. We're so missional. We're the ones that are going out and hitting the streets and all these other churches, blah, 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 blah. Be careful. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? What do you have that you were not given? You don't have anything spiritually that wasn't given to you. Nothing. So we have no room for boasting. But you see, if we don't understand our beginnings, if we don't understand that we were completely and totally dependent on God for everything right from the beginning, then we will fall into the extreme of being prideful about our spirituality. Do you, do you, here's some tests on, on your spiritual pride. Is your first response to people when they don't hit your spiritual standards, is your first response to them annoyance, frustration? <sighs> this again. Do you hear that in your head? People don't hit, they're not able to attain your spiritual status. And you might have a case of spiritual pride. Because if you see somebody that's not at your level, quote unquote, shouldn't your first response, if you're completely Christ-like, be, man, I gotta pray for that person. Let me get us, let me go alongside and help disciple that person. Man, maybe I'm not communicating this well enough. But if our first response is, oh, this again. You again. You may have some spiritual pride. Paul told that here's another example of spiritual pride. He said to the Corinthians, when you compare yourself by yourselves, you're not wise. Do you compare yourself to other people and somehow always come out on top? You know, am I, am I comparing my... It's funny. You know, preachers will compare themselves to each other. Nobody wants to compare themselves to Spurgeon because <laughs> you're going to lose. But you'll compare yourself to other people. You come out on top. I'm just talking about preachers because I ended up being a preacher. But whatever it is in your spirituality, you, you like comparing yourself to people. You come out on top. Be careful. That's spiritual pride. You need to realize where you started. You started completely and totally dependent on God, and you have nothing spiritually that you were not given. What's the other extreme this protects us from? Despair. If we don't get this down, we either fall into pride or despair. Why? For the exact same reason. Do you compare yourself to other Christians and see how far along they are and then despair of where you are? 
Paul says, he started the work in you. He's going to complete it. Yes, you're not where the other, the other guy is. And we're going to talk about how to deal with that in a second. But you're not the one who began the work in yourself. He began the work in you. So don't worry about comparing yourself to other people and letting the enemy come in and tell you you're some horrible Christian or you're not a Christian at all because you don't measure up. So you fall into despair because you're not where other people are because we're comparing ourselves to other people. Maybe you're not comparing yourself to anybody. You're just opening the Bible and you know, hey, this is what the scripture says I'm supposed to be as a father and as a son and as a wife and as a whatever, co-worker, whatever. And man, I am failing miserably. So you're not comparing yourself to anybody. You're just looking at God's standard. Yes, but he who began a good work in you will complete it. Now look, there's work to do. We're going to talk about doing work in a second. But before we talk about doing any sort of work, we need to realize where we came from, where our ground is. What ground are you standing on? You're standing on a father who chose you, a son who died for you, and a Holy Spirit who drew you in and is going to stay with you until the end. That is who you are. Once you get that down, then we can talk about your improvements. By the way, this was Paul's tactic. Look at Ephesians. You, if you look at Ephesians, Ephesians is jam-packed with theology. Before he tells the Ephesians to do anything, you know, husbands love your wives, be a good worker, pray a lot. Before he tells them to do any of that in the second half of the book, what does he start the first half of the book in? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in the heavenlies with all spiritual blessings because he chose us in Christ. He starts off by telling them who they are in Jesus before he tells them to do anything else. So what is our strategy for, for self-improvement in the new year? Our first strategy for self-improvement in the new year is to realize that we cannot improve ourselves. Because you couldn't even do the very first elementary basic thing about Christianity without the Trinity. So how in the world are you going to advance without them? He began the good work. Now, anytime you preach a sermon like this, people go, see? See? I agree, Andrew. We should just chill. We just kind of sit back, watch TV, put your legs up, and God will kind of do the work. Well, one of the marks of maturity in the Christian life is balance. Balance, wisdom. That's one of the marks of maturity. The Apostle Paul was one of the most balanced teachers ever in the history of teachers anywhere. So watch what Paul does. Remember what he said that we just talked about, and look what he says later on. Now, if I could find it, that would be awesome. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2. Look what he says in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, and not as only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now, watch what he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You say, Paul, you just told me that it was the Trinity that began this good work in me. Now you're telling me to work, work for my salvation with fear and trembling? 
Well, wait a second. Did it say work for your salvation? It says work out your salvation. By the way, it says work out your own salvation. What's the implication? <laughs> the implication is I am not going to look at Stevie and say, Stevie, I'm working out Stevie's salvation. Now, I disciple him, but I cannot work out his salvation. Well, what, what am I talking about? Well, let's look at the next verse. What does the next verse say? For it is God who works in you. Now, let me ask you a really, really practical question. Don't get spiritual on me. Can you see with your natural eyes God working in a person? No. I don't know how the Holy Spirit, you know, every time I talk about the Spirit working, I go like this, as if he's got hands and he's doing something with your heart. I don't know what he does, okay? I don't know what that looks like. It's, he's invisible, all right? And your, your heart is invisible. I don't know what he does. I'm just doing this. That's what I do. But it's an invisible work. So when Paul says work out your salvation, here's what he's saying. Hey, man, God is working in you invisibly. Live outwardly as a sign of what God is doing internally. Make visible what God is doing invisibly in you. I go, okay, all right, that makes sense. So we got a guy over here, right? He just came up here and, you know, kind of eared himself out in front of everybody. What's happening? He's working out his salvation. God is invisibly working in Chad, and then Chad goes out here and visibly gives us the evidence of God's invisible work in him. That's what it means to work out your salvation. Put God's work in you on display outside. Now, let's hearken on this phrase, fear and trembling. Some of you and, you know, there, there have been many people, you know, I used to, I read a lot of uh, John Wesley's, uh, John Wesley's, you know, biography in his, uh, his notebooks, you know, his journals. Man, that is a very depressing read. John Wesley used to, you used to nitpick every little thing that he did. And he was always afraid that God was going to, that he was, that he wasn't a real Christian. This, this was one of the most amazing Christians ever to walk in the Western Hemisphere. But he was so particular about everything, he just couldn't trust God. Now, a lot of that had to do with the fact that John Wesley didn't really understand what we talked about 10 minutes ago. He was an amazing man. But he was so particular about his salvation that he almost, you almost thought every other day he wasn't saved. He just could never trust God. Now, listen. When the scripture says fear and trembling, we've got to put it in context. In Psalm 139, David says of God, I praise you because I am what? Fearfully and wonderfully made. And by the way, the root word for fearfully and wonderfully made is the same root word in fear and trembling. So let's think about this. In Psalm 139, God is spoken of of working fearfully when he made you. Now, was God up in heaven or down in your mom's womb? See, I'm doing this here. Was God in your mom's womb afraid when he was making you? Or was he paying careful and close attention to making you? See, when it says fearful, it doesn't mean in the context terrified or whatever. What it means is this is something I am taking serious. This is an A1 priority for me above any and everything. 
I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God, you put your undivided attention on me. Now, this is the thing that makes God God. Because he could do that and still run the universe at the same time without breaking a sweat. We're not like that. I'm not you know, multitasking. you got to do one thing at a time. But God's, God's not like that. He's a good multitasker. But listen, it's the same word that's used in working out your salvation. So what is Paul saying? I do not believe that Paul is telling you to walk around scared to death in your Christian life. That's all he's saying. Because how in the world can he then tell the Philippians to rejoice always? Later on, as the book closes, he tells them, rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. Oh, my Rejoice. As he said rejoice. You guys are like, yeah, rejoice. Uh, hopefully we'll make it up during worship. Good night. All right. <laughs> but think about this. So he can't tell them to rejoice if he's telling them to be terrified and scared to death like John Wesley. I mean, God forgive me, but you, you see what I'm saying? No, Paul is telling them, hey, guys, this whole thing about working out your salvation, man, you guys got to pay close and careful attention to it. It's got to be an A1 priority for you. Just like it was a priority for God to make you in your mom's womb and, and, and all your hair follicles and all that, you take your salvation that serious. So you got to sit there and look in the mirror and go, okay, there's areas of my salvation. There, there's, there's a working out. Because look, you're always working something out in your words, in your actions, in the things you don't say, in the things that you do say, in the things you do, in the things you don't do. In your generosity or your non-generosity, in your telling people the gospel and you're not telling, you are always working something out. So many of us go through life unintentional. You just wake up and you just do everything in autopilot. You know, sometimes I drive home and I end up home and I don't even know how I got there because I'm just in autopilot. Paul is saying, do not live your Christian life in autopilot. Work it out with fear and trembling. Be cautious about how you're running your Christian life. It's one of the cool things about winter. Because when it's winter, I can't just end up in my driveway. you got to really concentrate and pay attention when you drive in the winter, yeah? Because there's craziness all over the road. You might get an accident. Let me explain something to you. In your Christian life, it is not a clear, sunny road. It is a sleek, wet, nasty road. And if you don't operate your Christian life with fear and trembling, you will end up in a ditch, I assure you. Many of the reasons that we fall into sin, many of the reasons that we fall into sin is because we're just so unintentional. It's not because we're bad people most of the time. And it's not because you, you wake up in the morning with a bad intention. It's because you wake up in the morning with no intention. But let me explain something to you. While you were sleeping, there was somebody that had a ton of intention about you. He's called the devil. I'm not one of these people, I don't see a devil under every rock, okay? And honestly, most of the devil's operations against you are to get you to sin and just have a nasty attitude and steal your joy. So, if you wake up unintentional, you do not stand a chance in working out your salvation in a proper way. So you wake up every day with no intentionality. So your first New Year's resolution. You know, Jonathan Edwards wrote this thing called the resolutions. I commend it to you. He, he wrote some of the most, I think he was 17 years old when he wrote it. Amazing. 
Every, seriously, everybody read Jonathan Edwards' resolution. Some of the most beautiful lines ever. You know, he says, one of his resolutions was to live with all my might while I live. Think about that. To live with all my might while I live. That was one of his resolutions. Another one was, I'll, I often hear elderly people say that they should have liked to have lived their life differently now that they have come to the end of their life. I am resolved to live in such a way that when I die or when I come to die, I will have no regrets and I wouldn't have changed anything. Imagine that. Imagine living that way. You say to yourself, look, from 2016 on, that's my life. I'm not going to look back at my life and go, oh man, we should have no regrets when, I, when I'm on my deathbed. From 2016 on. The only way to live that way is to intentionally live every single day of your life working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Namely, be intentional. Johan, sit over there. You're on red. Okay, now, let's go some real, real practical ways about how to do that. First of all, it's good to be intentional. It's good to have a good intention. Uh, but you've got, to, you've got to have something to stand on. How is your Bible reading? Or as Kyle would say, how is your Bible memorization? You know, the scripture says, Psalm 119, your word have I hidden in my heart so that I might not, what? Sin against you. People go, man, there's sin, man. I keep falling to sin. I don't know why I keep falling to sin. And, and we're better at, at quoting the latest Adele song or the latest uh, sports whatever, and we don't have much Bible. We can memorize all other stuff. Can't memorize the Bible. Now look, I'm not saying memorize the Bible because it's your Christian duty, and that's what good Christians do. What I'm saying to you is memorize your scripture so that you don't keep falling into the same silly sin traps that you keep falling into. That's what I'm saying. Because they're very, you, you know, look, in prosperity gospel, you know, they tell you, oh, if you do this, then, then God, you're guaranteed to get this. There are very few real guarantees like that in Scripture. One of them is you believe in Jesus, you're good with God. Another one is if you pray for wisdom, God will give it to you. Another one is if you hide, the more of the Scripture you hide in your heart, the less you will sin against God. Now, let me ask you an honest question. What is more valuable to you? Prosperity or a method for not sinning against God. You see, all of us, especially this type of crew, would say, that prosperity gospel is terrible. You're coming to God for money, blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, many of us are horrible at disciplining ourselves to memorize scripture so that we don't sin against God. So how far away from you, from, from that doctrine, are you truly? Because I assure you, if I told you in the next month, if you memorize a chapter of the Bible, I will give you $1.5 million, I would have a bunch of Bible scholars here who know that chapter. Am I right? All right, then. So memorizing scripture so that we can protect ourselves from sin is one way we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling. How else can we work out our salvation? Hey guys, how's your prayer life? This is 2016. And again, 
Is this about becoming a better person for being a better person? Or is this about, okay, God, you're working in me, and I want to actually go out there and work out my salvation? One of the easiest ways to tell if a person is truly growing in grace is not um, how many theological words they can shoot back to you. It's not even how many people can preach the gospel. You, I need you to understand something, especially this group, because we're a very mission-oriented group. Jesus said the Pharisees crossed land and sea to make a single convert. You understand that? In a group like this, one of the dangers is you do all this fancy stuff. Ooh, the guy preaches at Planned Parenthood. So what? So what? The Pharisees jumped in boats and went for one person. You understand the implications? That they were leaving their families behind. They were leaving comfort behind. They were leaving all this stuff. These guys were hardcore operators. And then Jesus said what? They're twice a son of hell as you are when you get done with them. Namely, you are so far from God that it would be better if these people never even met you. This is Jesus saying this. The nicest man on the earth. Why? They had no real authentic, true walk with God. One of the clearest tests of your walk with God is what you're doing when nobody is around you. When nobody's there to pat you on the back, when nobody's there to affirm you, when nobody is there to tell you you did a great job, when nobody is there to not judge you. You see what I just said? Many of us do a lot of spiritual stuff so we don't get judged by people. Not really worrying about working out our salvation. We're just doing it so people won't judge us so we can fit in with the peer pressure that gets created in a group like this. Yes, I said it. What are you doing when you're by yourself? You know, when Jesus says, go into your prayer closet, the, the, and many of us have literalized that, and that's good. But what he means by the closet is the times when you're completely by yourself. And he says, when you go into your closet, Jesus assumed that if you're going to follow me, you're going to have this type of life. He just assumed it. Show me one place where Jesus would say, please go into your prayer closet. Jesus couldn't fathom a person who followed him who did not do that. See, in Jesus' mind, if you're following me, of course you're going to want to meet with the Father. I mean, think about it. What did Jesus do? You know, people, oh man, I just got this busy schedule. You got a busy schedule? Your schedule's more busy than Jesus? Because Jesus had a fairly busy schedule, and he still found time to go and get away with the Father. Why? Because he was Jesus, and he would... No, because... He loved the communion with the Father. And that is where he got all of the power to do what he did. I hope you understand something. Yes, Jesus was completely God in the flesh, but he completely surrendered all of his rights. He lived as a man. So it wasn't because he was superhuman that he did that. It was the exact opposite reason. It was because he was completely dependent on the Father. He knew he needed prayer. He knew he needed communion with God. You know, there are times, Jesus got tired. John chapter 4, he said he was tired from his journey. Jesus wasn't walking around superhuman. He says a son can do nothing unless he sees the father doing it first. He says all the words that I've spoken to you come from my father. How did he know what the father was saying? He was connecting himself 
to the Father through prayer. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Your prayer life should be intentional. You should wake up every... You know, when you wake up... Now, think about this. When you're obsessed with something, don't you wake up and strategize for ways to make that thing happen? You know, whatever, music, sports, whatever. Don't you wake up and go, okay, I want to I watch this much TV. I want to watch this show. Now, before TiVo, you could record the stuff, but walk with me. I want to watch this show. So I'm going to do this and this and this and this to organize my day around being able to watch this show or whatever it is. Be around this person, listen to this music, do whatever. You do everything you can to manipulate your day to make sure that that block of time is free, don't you? Hey guys, maybe we can use 2016 now as an excuse to really ask God to help us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Pray. Here's the last thing I'll tell you. You're in your scripture. You're praying. Here's something I will challenge everybody in cell 53 with. I was listening to a a, a sermon a couple uh, days ago, weeks ago, months ago. I don't know. And I was hearing about this guy who basically told the Lord, hey, Lord, I'm not going to bed until I tell 10 people I don't know about Jesus. Now, that's a guy who's working out his salvation. Now, look, that was where he was with God. So we're not going to set any legalistic goals about you need to do whatever. We're not doing that. And by the way, I'm putting this last you get in your Bible and your prayer time, please. If you can't get this, if you can't get the first two, just delete me right now. Don't even listen to me. But listen. We've got an entire city full of people who still don't know Jesus. Now, we got two baptisms. I celebrate them. You celebrate them. We should. But there are many more baptisms to come. I got nine, we got 9,000 Somalis outside these buildings. We don't have one Somali baptism yet. I'm not discouraged. It's just a matter of time. But here's what I'm saying to you. Everything we did last year was amazing together. Amazing. This is a year. Now we're going to challenge ourselves, stretch ourselves, and step it up. And I don't know what that looks like for you. I was having a conversation with a real good friend of mine. I've known him for years. I said, hey, man, when was the last time you did something where you, com- you were in a situation where you completely and totally had to depend on God. He's looking around, he's like, man, I don't know. I said, well, look, you, you, sometimes you got to manufacture those situations. Sometimes you got to put yourself in a situation where you got to completely and totally depend on God. Why? Because what is being worked out there is your faith in God. Work out your salvation. What? The, the, the mechanism of faith. So we, at 2017, here's a challenge. We should have an entire Rolodex of things that we stepped out and did that could only have been accomplished by God. Nothing we were comfortable with. So, you, you know, I, I, one of the craziest lines I've heard in my entire life, somebody said, how are we going to call the Holy Spirit the comforter when we don't put ourselves in a situation where we need his comfort? <laughs> Unbelievable line. Think about that for a second. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna read our Bibles, we're gonna pray, and then we're gonna step out and do ridiculous things for Jesus in this city that can only be explained by the fact that we have a God who's working inside of us. 
like, listen, what it means to work out your salvation is that people on the outside should look at you and go, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, why are you doing that? And they don't necessarily have to be happy with you. But we shouldn't go months and months and months with people looking at us like, people ought to look at you like you're from another planet. Because Jesus says, they're not of the world even as I am not of the world. You, you think Jesus would have just completely fit in here? No, you know something's different about him, wouldn't you? So let's just go out and do just insane things for Jesus for the entire year so that when 2016 is rolling to a close, you can look back and go, man, look at what God did. Now, let's read the rest of the verse. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to what? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul says, you got to do all this work. Read your Bible. Pray. Go be crazy and missional. And by the way, the very will and desire that you have to do that and you following it out, it's still God's work in you. What does that mean? Don't get prideful. 2016 is over. Your prayer life's going to get better, I trust. Your Bible reading and memorization is going to get better. You're going to have a whole Rolodex of insane things you did for the Lord Jesus. When that's all over at the end of the year, don't get prideful. Why? It was God who worked, didn't you? You go, how do you put all that together? I have no idea. I barely graduated high school. Don't ask me. I don't know how that all works together. All I know is I am told to work with all my might. And at the same time, I'm told that God is the one that's working in me for his good pleasure. I don't know how to put it together. I don't need to. All I need to do is obey what the Bible tells me and trust the promises, right? So this is a command and a promise in the same text. Come on. All right, so there's 2016. There go your resolutions. You're going to do it from the right source. The right source is, hey, this whole thing began with God. It's going to end with God. I'm going to work out the invisible work that God has done in me outside for everybody to see this entire year. And look, you're surrounded by friends who are going to help you along the way. Come on. Being a Christian is the greatest thing in the world. Seriously. If you're not a Christian, I don't understand. If you're not a Christian, I don't understand why. But what else do you have to do with your time? Okay, so if you're not a Christian, be a Christian and um, let's do it this year. Yeah? yeah? All right. Let's worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your scripture. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for my children. Especially Johan, God, uh, man, it's such a good and awesome privilege to be able to be your son and your daughters and be in your family, Jesus. I pray that this year, when this is all over, we will look back and rejoice in all the insane things that you've done with us and through us. God, I pray for our city. God, you've got amazing things planned for this city. Yeah. And thank you for that. And look, God, you, you began a work in this city already. So what you said about us individually is also true for the city. You began a good work in the city. You're going to complete it. We trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53, proclaiming the kingdom of God for the sake of the city. For more resources, visit cell53.com.